Have you seen this? The Age of Sail adventure that was scuttled due to a media sea change, and we consider what might have been had the cultural winds not shifted. Have you seen this? The world's only podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten media. All discussions will be spoiler heavy. You have been warned. <clears throat> um, well, I let me let me let me get us in the mood. A British tar is a soaring soul, as free as a mountain bird. His energetic fist should be ready to resist a dictatorial word. Take it, Tim! Boy, why aren't you just shouting the words? And fighting the bird and <laughs> shouting for England. <laughs> Ah, you clearly work in the bowels of the ship. You palmy officer. You don't you don't dine with the lieutenants. No, I dine with the right tenants. <laughs> I dine with David Tennant. <laughs> there, you got a straight intro for once. Not me going like, hey, this movie sucks and has Lindsay Lohan in it. Thank God. Right. Uh, it is exciting to talk about something really cool. And like, the I- time truly has come. I'm impressed that we've done like... 200 episodes and we've indulged all of my trash media um fixations but we haven't actually done any of the movies that you like what like dad movies <laughs> well yeah i mean you are you are your father's daughter um this this really is like a perfect dad movie it is um because it exists like i said of a certain cultural zeitgeist that is just out of step with um i think current sensibilities which is unfortunate because um master and commander the far side of the world unfortunately not related to the gary larson cartoon um (laughs) or comic Um, yeah russell russell crowe plays a cow that can use tools (laughs) uh paul bettany is a neanderthal with just a line for eyes (laughs) But um but yeah the um the the crazy thing the wacky thing about this Master and Commander movie is that it depicts a character who is not really um flawed and damaged like i think that um the kind of cultural zeitgeist as of late as of sometime around i don't know the end of 2001 where America kind of got scared and shifty and just kind of lost all its principles. This is about a, a principled character who is good at their job and works hard to achieve success. And I think that just with 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 just everything, with, you know, uh, rising costs of living, you know, several once-in-a-lifetime financial meltdowns, um, you know, people getting away with murder, that sort of thing. A lot of room for hope has been lost out of media. So to have your movie's protagonist be someone who is um, skilled and successful and affects meaningful change, I think that audience audiences kind of don't go for that because there's no... like Just the notion of in your own life being able to like have 
honor and dignity and a positive impact on the world is just like I can't even relate to this anymore. So that I feel like in a way that kind of um, undercuts the uh, the the ultimately optimistic tone of Master and Commander. What do you think, Jen? That's all I have to say. You take it away. You take it from here. Okay, I'll see you, Tim. Um, all right. Yep. Have a good night. Um, <laughs> I'm setting my headphones down now. Take the first watch. Um, I think that at the time, this movie, even in, okay, this movie's 20 years old, which... Um, yeah, this is from, what, 2003? 2003. Yeah. And I don't usually dwell on that kind of shit. Like, in fact, like, I get a little irritated when people are like, oh my god, do you realize this movie, this one movie came out, like, 10 years ago or whatever? It's like, yeah, time moves forward. What else is new? Um, <laughs> but maybe yeah, it's because... But maybe because this movie was um, specifically meaningful to me because I really loved it at the time and I still love it. I've seen it like 50,000 times. Mm-hmm. It, that, that hits differently. To, to consider the time it has passed since Master and Commander hit the theaters and was a moderate success, but not enough to guarantee the franchise that... Uh, Fox and uh, Tom Rothman, who is the executive who um, mm-hmm. really pushed this project, were hoping for. And 2003 was really a different time. It feels like a lifetime ago. And, like, yeah, it was in kind of in that um, post 9 11 uh, shell shock period. Mm-hmm. But also, I remember the culture feeling like just really everything was like kind of raw raw fuck all y'all like we will rise again to fuck shit up um and this film is a little more thoughtful than that and i remember at the time even at the time it felt a little bit old-fashioned but right yeah if anything the movie's a little out of place and and that is it does have old-fashioned values like things are you know fortitude and honor and you know dignity being tangible things that can um, you know, affect affect your life rather than the sort of capriciousness of larger forces, you know, beyond yourself. Where it's like, yep, what can you do? You know, I, yeah, I tried and my tradition, best, and someone just said uh, we need to let twenty percent of you go. Yeah, and tradition not being a bad thing, right? Yeah. An interesting comparison to make is um, this movie and one of my favorite television shows, The Terror, the first season. Oh um, yeah. They're somewhat separated in time because this takes place during the Napoleonic Wars, 1805. Um, the Franklin the oceans Expe- have become battlefields. Yes. Yes, the Franklin Expe- expedition was more like mid 19th century, as if I recall correctly. But um, the institution concerned was still pretty much the same: the the British Navy. And it's really interesting to look at. Uh, a fairly optimistic treatment of the material like this and a really dark supernatural uh, take mm-hmm. on uh, British naval expeditions, like first season of the terror. Yeah. But I really love both. Um, well, yeah, it's because they don't have any pesky women in them. And, you know, they're about boys going on adventures, which is Jen's favorite genre of movie. <laughs> Well, this is a very character-driven movie because, I mean, mm-hmm. it's literally about the character of the men 
on this fucking boat. Yes. Um, and the best movies to me are the ones where the characters motivate the story and the themes of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is what makes a movie truly rich and worth experiencing. And also it's kind of a rare experience because creating these kinds of characters is really fucking difficult. Not a lot of people are good at it. And, you know, Tim kicked off by mentioning how out of place this movie kind of feels now. It certainly does. Um, like I said, it didn't... Um, they didn't get the franchise they wanted out of it. There is apparently a sequel in development and it's something which Russell Crowe has actually pushed for on social media. In fact, he was like, yeah, like email Tom Rothman and, at Fox and, you know, let him know that you want to see another Master <laughs> Commander film. You know, as Tim was saying, like, it's it's a movie that's out of place. And um, this, um, this film coming out in 2003... Um, people recognize the quality. It was it was nominated for a passel of Oscars. It only won two, two very well-deserved Oscars, in my Please opinion. Please tell me one of them was sound design. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, because that is well-earned. Yes, because otherwise, like, they would have been fucking robbed. Because yeah. sound design in this movie is incredible. But I will get to that, because I would like to effuse about it at length. Um, yeah, if you care about sound design, this is definitely a movie to... Well, I don't want to say watch. I'm to listen to. <laughs> just uh, you know, watch it once and enjoy it, and then the next time, put it on and then just close your eyes and just groove on the on the sound. Right, yeah. Um, but this movie did get a lot of Oscar nominations, but unfortunately, it was kind of shut out by another uh, posi- uh, kind of fairly optimistic movie about heroes, um, Return of the King, the Lord of the Rings film. That was a popular movie. Yeah. Yeah. And doesn't it feel weird to look back on the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Because that is starting to feel like very much. And yeah, I know it's been 20 fucking years, but yeah, um, sometimes time is a blur. And you're like, whoa, that was 20 years ago? Like what? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if you were there, but I mean, I remember seeing, you know, all three of them back to back to back of the Cinerama Dome. Oh, I remember. I remember that screening and I had... I actually, I actually had the option because I'm pretty sure like most of my friends went to that <laughs> to that screening. <laughs> well, yeah. And I was like, I was like, you know, that sounds <clears throat> cool, but I just know that I will get like a little too tired for that. But you know, props to the people who did go because that's an that's an epic piece of movie going. <laughs> sure is. Yeah, I guess you know to be up against Lord of the Rings is one of those things where you could never anticipate. You know, just a, a juggernaut like that being your opposition. Yeah. And this movie was very well reviewed. Um, like I said, moderate success. I think because of the price tag, this cost about $150 million to mm-hmm. make. Um, obviously, a very complex production. I mean, uh, they yeah, shot that's... in, I believe they shot in Australia. They shot in Baja, California, because like Fox had a facility down there. Um, working in and around the water um yeah, tons of visual effects yeah a historical action movie shot on water like yeah. when is that not expensive yeah and with uh, um attention to detail um for the costuming mm-hmm. and the production design which is really like second to none and i'm not really yeah, an expert really in like yeah i'm not really an expert on like how um 
accurate this stuff is, but I believe a lot of care and attention was put into um, the visual aspects just to make it look well, accurate, like really period. Yeah. Accurate but, or um, not, that it looks legitimate, that it's convincing. That's the, yeah, that's the important part. Yeah, and kind of funny, um, <clears throat> this movie came out, I saw it in theaters, I loved it, and then around the same time, you know, people wouldn't shut up about this fucking uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movie that <laughs> had been out, but was like, at that time, it was like in the, the dollar theaters or whatever. And I was like, okay, like, I'll go see this because, like, I guess everyone else has seen it. Yeah. Now, seeing Pirates of the Caribbean after Master and Commander, like, the costumes in Pirates of the Caribbean look like they came from, like, a fucking spirit Halloween store. <laughs> like, because you know, uh, what's it's the, a different kind of movie. Yeah. What's the guy for, that 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 actor from Coupling who's in the first parts of the Caribbean movie? Oh, I I don't remember his name, but but yeah, he's Steve. I don't yeah, know his name. And he's like a British naval officer. And yeah. if you were to put him next to Russell Crowe in his like, you know, captain's uniform for Master and Commander, the difference is just absolutely hilarious. Right, yeah. It's like, you idiots, you've captured their stunt doubles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, I also, I love that they don't really stint on any period detail, including um, the roughly blousey shirt that Russell Crowe is wearing while the ship is becalmed. Because, you know, everybody is, like, stripped down as much as they could because it's mm-hmm. miserably hot. And, yeah. you know, he... He calls Hollum into his quarters to talk to him, and he just faces off with him in this, like, poet shirt with, like, ruffles on the collar, which is, like, cut, like, halfway down his chest. And I was like, you know, Russell Crowe, like, sells that. Like, yeah. you're, no, you're not, you're not going to laugh at his shirt. Take that, Jerry it. Seinfeld. Yeah. <laughs> some guys can pull it off. Some guys can't. Yeah, but, I mean, it's... And he's incredible in the in the movie it's one of my favorite russell crowe performances and it reminds me of mm-hmm. why i'm like such a big fan of him as a leading man and he's just perfect for the role because he's like so commanding a he's presence. mastering and commanding yeah yeah um yeah so the one-two punch of that and ellie confidential and jen's like sold absolutely and then yeah. uh he made the mummy with tom cruise and i was like hmm all right <laughs> well, I'm gonna go watch Master and Commander again. Yeah, that's it's a it's a job, I guess. They <laughs> speaking of movies, they thought they were gonna get a franchise out of. Right. Yeah. I mean, considering that, I mean, considering that, just like the shambling corpse that is the, like you know the DC whatever cinematic universe. Yeah. Like just just put a bullet in it and try Master and Commander again. Like that was a moderate success, rather than people just like gritting their teeth over what you know what's the next failure. I I, I saw. You know, there's a Reddit thread that was like, you could, you can make, uh, you know, you could have a documentary of like all the failed Superman projects alone, like going back to like Superman Lives, the, um, yeah, the, the one uh, that was going to have Nicolas Cage. Right. Yeah. The Kevin Smith, Tim Burton thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, spider. um, another way in which this movie feels like completely out of step with current movie making, yeah, it has, it has a lot to do with like, the current franchise fatigue. Mm-hmm. I, like this, this feels like this movie feels diametrically opposed to the kind of thing that they're spending more than $150 million a pop on. 
because this is like a thoughtful movie with like well-considered themes, an excellent mm-hmm. ensemble, as well as like, you know, care and attention play- paid to what's on the screen. And then you yeah. put it, and there is like, I know for a fact that there's a lot of CG in this movie, but it's not like obtrusive. I can only it think of like, it. you know, Shark Boy and Lava Girl levels of CG, <laughs> which yeah, and I don't know if I anyone can... knows that meme, but that's that's been my like perception of Marvel movies since like the the scales fell from my eyes. Yeah, or like um, what was that that one with Angelina Jolie, The Eternals, or whatever? Right. Yeah. Like that just looked like shit. And this, um, I can think of a specifically think of a couple of shots in the movie where you're like, oh yeah, that's like. You know, that's very obviously like, you know, yeah, green the flying screen. shark. But yeah. <laughs> the, only, <laughs> the, Sharknado. the only reason the only reason I noticed those shots is because I've seen the movie so many fucking times. Like, right. Yeah. All the other times I watched it, I was so involved in the story that I wasn't sitting there going like, oh, yeah, like Paul Bettany is just on fucking, you know, he's standing on a little platform pretending he's in the Galapagos Islands. <laughs> I see what you're doing, Paul Bettany. That's oh, so and phony. speaking of. This is pre-Marvel yeah. Paul Bettany before he was consigned mm-hmm. to life playing <laughs> yeah, uh, as a magenta Jarvis robot. slash yeah. Vision. Yeah. Ugh. Man. Yeah, why can't he get be getting more roles like that in Dogville? <laughs> <laughs> and he plays the incel nice guy. Yeah, like and you know what? They almost they almost and That's had a good a, role a do- because he because it still bothers me like seeing him I'm like, "Oh, that guy." <laughs> but, you know, he really he really embodied the role. Good for him. You, you know, they 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 could have had like a Dogville franchise because they did Dogville and then they did Manderley with Bryce Dallas Howard. Yeah, uh, there wasn't you know. there wasn't a third movie in that universe though. It's it's weird. It couldn't have cost that much to produce. No. Well, I mean, the third <laughs> movie was um was Antichrist, and they're like Lars, we need a hit with this, otherwise you're done. <laughs> <laughs> well, as far as I'm concerned, the like Antichrist was just an unqualified success. Right? Yeah, it is exactly what you want. And the, well, the uh, thinking about Dogville and Lars, like that's the thing is that like Lars will do something once, and you'll be like, "Oh my god, that's so powerful!" And then he'll do it again. And you're like, "Come the fuck on." He likes he likes trolling. Right, yeah. So he, he, he over trolls he can, relentlessly. He he can overplay his hands. I think I mentioned in our Lars von Trier episode. Yes, but, but you know, yeah. So we're talking about CG Paul Bettany not really being on the Galapagos Islands. That's a well, cheap. they did shoot in the actual Galapagos, and this was the fir- I think the first feature film ever to shoot there. Which is understandable because it's obviously that's a protected area because of its very unique and you know yeah. fragile ecosystem. And I don't know how they swung getting the permission to do it, but they did because you see like you know you see the marine iguanas and the you know the, the frigate birds and yeah you know whatever whatever the fuck that flightless cormorant is. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty not, cool. Not not that's quite a, a that's penguin, another not thing quite a seagull. Is, yeah, and that you know that's another thing. Like these days, there's no way they would have gone all the way down to the Galapagos Islands. They would have been like, "Fuck it, let's just." Yeah, it's like, do we have any, any like? It. Yeah, do we have any like uh you know assets from like the Unity store that we can just use? <laughs> it's just that. It's just that. Uh, it's that that cat one loaf. cat, the loaf cat, <laughs> the black and white loaf cat. 
that. An undiscovered species of loaf. Yeah. Like, Maturin discovers the cat loaf and, like, the, the also the CG capybara. <laughs> it's some kind of cat, but without any limbs. It's a, two, it's a legless cat. Two heretofore undiscovered species in one day. <laughs> there, Jay, you gotta do, like, a mashup then of, like, him looking through the spyglass and then the cat showing up. Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. Okay, we we are a hundred percent gonna do that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck, I love it so much because I love this movie so much. Yeah, well, it's a like I said, it's an optimistic movie. It is um, one where you have strong characters achieving their goals. Which you know, if you are anyone who lives in the world and goes to see this movie, you're like, this is completely unrealistic. <laughs> like you well, have a guy in charge who's competent and like. Uh, conscientious. Yes. Um, he he has a friend, which already you're like, that's weird. Um, <laughs> Every redditor is like, come on. Yeah. No way. <laughs> Two guys who like hang out and enjoy each other's company. Like, I mean, I do a podcast with one person, but I mean, I don't even like her that much. And we're not friends. Like, come on. No, no. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it's not Although I would. Oh man! Like, can you imagine if you pulled redditors on the character of Hollem? That's a good question. Well, what would we got to talk about that, Jen? All we right. have to talk about. Oh, Hall. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. Which one's Hollem? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the midshipman who uh, gets um, labeled the Jonah. <laughs> oh, oh, my spirit animal. That yeah. is a and that is a really <clears throat> really poignant character, right? Because this um this movie because like, we haven't described anything about the the plot or the story at all. It is, you know, like I, I mentioned a um a, a historical action adventure movie, and it is about the age of sail. It hits all the notes. Um, it has to deal with um uh with with uh you know ship-to-ship combat, like in Traveler. Um, it has to deal with, you know, um, uh, not so much piracy, but... Um, privateers. You know, ship- yeah, privateers, you know, with the letter with the the letter of Mark. Uh, it's, you know, the Napoleonic Wars. It has to deal with... Um, uh, French people. Gross. Yeah, French people, the worst. Uh, just <laughs> gross. Yeah, it is, you know... Uh, Navigation, dealing with weather, dealing with you know human resources issues. Yeah. Um. So there are a lot of uh there are a lot of topics that go into running a ship. It isn't just shooting cannons at the other guy and then waiting for him to sink. There's a lot more to it. And to its credit, the movie covers all of the highlights of what you would want out of an Age of Sail movie. Yes. So the and amongst those things is one of the characters who gets just labeled as a Jonah, just sort of this like bad omen. Yeah, scapegoated. Um, yeah, yeah, he becomes the scapegoat because they have, and there are like a lot of great characters in this, and each of them have you know their own you know very poignant journeys. Yes, and amongst them, you know, the there are you know there's the regular, you know, rough and tumble crew, just you know a bunch of just awful 
uneducated, you know, <laughs> able seaman, whatever. Um, <laughs> probably half of whom were like, probably like half of whom were press ganged into like being in the fucking British Navy. Right. Yeah. Which is something they, which Maturin brings up later in the movie because, um, and that's uh, Paul Bettany's character, Doctor Doctor Maturin, mm-hmm. kind of the uh, the yin to Aubrey's yang. Or yeah, he's the commander Data to Captain Picard. <laughs> I mean, I guess. <laughs> Two great characters. Um, right. Like, Matron mentions that the because they're dealing with some ill feeling on the ship, mm-hmm. and um, Captain Aubrey is kind of, he knows he has to have this one guy flogged, and he kind of feels yeah. bad about it. <laughs> and uh, Matron points out, you know, like, what do you expect for men who've been, like, pressed from their homes? They're, like, forced to serve on the ship. They're, like, confined for right. months on end. Um, but yeah, he's kind of the, uh, he's, Matron is a little more subversive because he's not, um, he's, he's, he's not a British naval man like everyone else he's surrounded with. Yeah. He's not like died in the wool king and country yeah. types. And thus he acts, he acts as a pretty good, um, conduit for the audience because mm-hmm. this movie also does a great job of making a lot of the nautical shit clear to like non- sailors <laughs> that is the amazing thing about this i'm like oh like they're telling me what's going on and like i can clearly see what's happening and i know what the stakes are and it's not and they're not doing it in a stupid ass clunky way right yeah like Even, that is really difficult and i was with amazed material too, like, like this yeah like have you have you looked at the books these are based on it, you know I can't read jen <laughs> i can barely read and sure right. enough i tried reading one or two of the books that um, that this movie was actually this movie I think was um, kind of clutched together from three different novels. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, it, t- it definitely took the highlights of each of them. Right, and people love these books, and I'm not maligning the books. I'm just saying that I'm a hundred percent too stupid to appreciate these books because you want to talk about like dense, like nautical detail, well, like. I'm- Every other sentence is a word where you're just like, I have no idea where the fuck that, what the fuck that means. Like, I don't even have like a ballpark understanding right. of where this word comes from. I don't know. I mean, you must have had to have read Moby Dick in high school, and that starts with you know notoriously like you know a hundred pages of whaling background. I've never, I've never read Moby Dick, Tim. I've, oh. I told, I keep telling you, don't I'm too stupid. garbage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know there's a whole chapter where he just like holds forth about whales, which right. To yeah, Melville are clearly some kind of fish. Probably. I don't know. Um, also, it's homoerotic. You know what? I should read it. <laughs> yeah, see, there you go. Yeah. yeah. More more boy adventures that Jen loves. And the other thing that, speaking of Moby Dick, is that it has been not a great adventure for, you know, Russell Crowe and his crew of the surprise because they've been tasked with, um, with, with sinking or capturing... One of the one of those lousy French vessels, the Acheron. Some, some, yeah, some piece of shit called the Acheron, um, and they they've been after it, and they've they've missed it two or three times already. So I can understand as part of the crew getting pretty restless about it, and then on top of that, just having you know bad weather befall them. And there's a point where one of the officers is just is scapegoated with like he's the reason that we've had this run of bad luck. And part of that is because he's an officer, you know, but he's not he's not an authority. He's not a commander. And even still, like he gets, you know, 
well, I wouldn't say he gets reprimanded, you know, by, you know, Russell Crowe's captain character. He gets help from him where he's like, look, you have to act like you're in charge. Like, it's, it isn't about being friends with them. It's about, you know, being their leader. And, and it's even, such a great, that is such a great scene. And yeah. I love the way that this character is set up because, mm-hmm. um, and first of all, like the, the, the setup for the movie is, is great. Um, shit, you know, we haven't even talked about how the movie opens, which is one of the biggest selling points for me. It's a um, great opening action scene. Yeah. Well, before that, um, because, okay. You know how, like you and I talk a lot about how in the movie alien, mm-hmm. the movie starts off not with action, action, action. Yeah. Like some movies might default to, but just like, here we are on the Nostromo. This yeah. is what it's like to be on this ship. This is all like atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Now, and it is a goddamn shame um, that probably that most... more popular, yeah. Well, it's... Uh, no, it's a goddamn shame that most of you probably haven't seen Master and Commander in the big screen. If you have the opportunity to see it in a really good screening room, you like move heaven and earth to go because I have, I've seen it in regular theaters and I've also seen it in um, a top flight screening room at my job where very loving care was given to every aspect of presentation because the screening room was looked after by nerds who knew exactly what the fuck they were doing. Um, The opening of this movie in a good theater is sublime because it, just through not just through the use of the visuals but also through incredible sound design it puts you on the hms surprise like you will feel like you are within the ship itself the creaking timbers the bells the wind the, the, the water. footsteps of of men on different decks you can like hear the sounds of action all around you of people moving to their stations incredible and yeah. it starts off very slowly it's the ship in kind of a quiescent time it's late most of the most of the men are in their hammocks sleeping um we see individual people like just you know the watch like just moving slowly and quietly like Mm -hmm. and the sound of the environment around the ship as it like moves through the water i can't i i can't sell this hard enough it's maybe one of my favorite openings to any movie Ever. I mean, that you broke out quiescent, I think, sells it. <laughs> I mean, holy shit. You think, I, you think I'd be able to read those fucking Patrick O'Brien books, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm too dumb. Like, um, right. I, I, like I'm, a mov- I'm, I'm a movie person. That's, right, that's as yeah. intellectual as I get. Um, they don't involve reading. Yeah, I do. Uh, like, when the, the, that famous, uh, now famous title screen comes up, April 1805, I'm just like, what the fuck is this? I can't read this shit. <laughs> um, and the whole reason we're talking about this movie is because um, a guy's tattoo has gone viral. He has the title card tattooed on his back, and, like, <laughs> at least three people sent it to me because they know how much I love the fucking movie. It's, it's, it's a good dope. tattoo. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so it starts by setting the mood like an alien of like, this is, you know, this is what it's like just being on a ship. Which, and, and it's such a balls, I'm sorry, I keep effusing, but it's such a ballsy no, way ahead. to open your movie because like so many 
Um, it, you know, and this was something which was told to us, like, you know, when I was doing my screenwriting concentration at UCLA, yeah. it's like, oh, you know, you got to get the, you got to get the story moving inside like the first seven pages. And they've probably moved it up since then. It's probably like, no, you got to get hearts pounding, like from the moment, like right, the movie yeah. starts. And instead, this is like, we're, we're putting you into 1805 on like a completely alien environment to like most mm-hmm. of us. Yeah, because you have to understand the parameters that you're living in. You're like, this is, you know, there are going to be, you know, sails and ropes and, you know, men scurrying about. There's No elbow be, room. Yeah, no elbow room. You know, here, your bed is a hammock, just like shoulder to shoulder with some other just guy who got press ganged into this. Yeah. You know, you'll be navigating by candlelight, you know, looking through telescopes where the glass isn't quite so great. Oh, I love those. I love those POV shots through like the 1800s lenses. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because (laughs) that's so good. Well, that's how they get the story starting off. And this is one of the things that I like, too, about, um, you know, the the French Connection in particular is it is a story started from a dead stop where it is a guy, you know, on, you know, whatever watch it is, you know, scanning the horizon with a spyglass, maybe sees a ship. Like that's that's enough to set things yeah. in motion, and which also tells you immediately about that character because Hollum is the one who spots what he thinks is a sail, mm-hmm. but his fellow midshipmen are like, you know, should we beat to quarters? You know, go to battle yeah. sta- battle readiness or whatever. Right. Yeah. And he's indecisive. He's like, I don't know. Like, did I actually see a sail? Like, shit. What? And it's like, okay. Like, and the this guy's is- like, well, either you did or you didn't. You have to make the call. Yeah, but he he just doesn't he, he just doesn't have the confidence to move decisively and it's the other midshipman who who says we shall beat to quarters and then you know you yeah. get the drums going and then you know everybody's yeah, it's like oh shit I'm up I'm up yeah yeah <laughs> I'm awake Ugh, I'll do so it. good yeah that's when you hear all the commotion of the ship which is really rallying just in how you know, again with the the sound design really um putting you there in the scene cuz you hear all the different kinds of action and you see what's going on where it is everyone has their own job to do it isn't just everyone's you know <laughs> just uh you know grab a rope grab a gun i don't know like people have shit to do and and you kind of get a glimpse of all the different things that are going on you know even things like the surgeon preparing where it's like all right i'm gonna get some wounded in so i need to get to my station so that you know when things start happening i'm prepared you yes. get a sense of all those different you know dozens of little jobs that all go on to make this thing work yeah and then you also get um the the contrast between um this this crew which is you know up to british naval standards and then the way they have to pretend to not be british navy sailors like later in the film you know they have to act like whalers like you know be you know handle the sails like in a lubberly way like don't like not like just right snap, yeah snap, stand, like. stand course but not too too close yeah you know exactly. fly casual thank you pippin right <laughs> yeah Fool of a toque. right <laughs> he doesn't have much character development which is unfortunate but you know to star and or at least be featured in you know two of the biggest movies of that year that's not bad yeah, he's doing all right for himself, I would hope. Right. Um, so let's see. So we've got the the intro of what happens, and you know Russell Crowe on deck does see you know the cannon fire of the other ship coming in, and you know if you know enough about movies, like they they get absolutely wrecked 
at the beginning of this, they're outclassed, you know, literally by this French frigate. It has, you know, all the new bells and whistles. It has longer guns. It has a... uh, It's bigger. Yeah, it's bigger. It has a thicker hull. It was built in America. When that used to mean something. (laughs) 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 Proudly made in America. Yeah, but... And you know that the rest of the movie from then on is going to be this adversarial, you know, relationship with them, or not relationship, this adversarial, you know, fight between them and the and the French ship, where um, they're they're the underdog and they're going to have to be more more bold and clever and calculating in order to beat the ship that you know is way beyond their means. Well, thank God they're being commanded by Lucky Jack. Yeah, lucky, lucky for them. <laughs> And the um, initial uh, the initial attack sets a lot of things sets a lot of character um, uh, stuff. Jeez, Tim, great uh, in, in motion. I just think it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's a very it, interesting film. <laughs> right? Yeah, it, it, it sets a lot of character uh, motivations um, going. It makes stuff go uh, because you have. Um, uh, what you you know, Paul Bettany's character like? There's a a guy who takes a, a traumatic head wound. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Where he, <laughs> yeah, like skulls, you know, like uh, cracked or whatever, and like a I don't depressed know if he's gonna live. skull fracture. Right. Yeah. But later Which on, which is like, damn, like this is 1805. You were fucked, dude. Right. Yeah. And you know that it is a losing proposition, but you know, Paul Bettany's doctor's like, still, well, gotta give it a go. And he repairs it with, like, he, he patches his skull with a coin? Yeah. <laughs> That's wild. And it's one of the things where it's like, I don't know, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. We just got to try. And that kind of is the tone of the movie. Because it is saying, you know, we can't just, like, shirk from our responsibilities. You know, we, we can't just be like, yeah, no, Astronaut's got our ass. Like, we can't go after them. It's like, well, if you want to capture the Astron, you're going to have to be clever about this. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's also... A really interesting. Oh God, damn it! <laughs> yeah, see now you're doing it. I pointing that swear jar. Um, I love the way that they contrast Maturin with Aubrey, because you have in the character of Aubrey like a very. Um, he is a traditional commander in a way, um, not a martinet like you might expect. Um, I know that's what I was thinking. <laughs> he has compassion for his men and is is well liked, but he's he's very much like the embodiment of like the ideal British naval officer. And then Maturin not being from that milieu is like more um I mean at one point like um Aubrey Albert calls him an anarchist um because he's <laughs> speaking in very subversive terms about uh their employer uh the British Navy. Mm. Um, and you think that Maturin is kind of going to be, uh, he and Aubrey are, are, are very great friends and their friendship really comes through. But um, there's a clash between Aubrey's traditionalism, traditionalism and, you know, kind of Maturin's like slight um, defiance. But as the movie goes on, you come to realize that they're not, they're not going to make, uh, a real an adversary or a villain out of Maturin. It's like, oh wait, this guy has something to offer as well. In spite of not being like a part 
of this kind of like hidebound institution. Like, yeah, he was fighting for like something that he believed in, or he, at least he had a purpose, even if the purpose was just like fuck the French. Yeah, and this was a this was like the tail end. Just give end. a stirring speech on that subject. But go ahead. Yeah, this was this was the tail end of the Enlightenment, um, and Maturin is very much of that um, kind of cultural moment because you know he's he's uh, he's a naturalist and he's interested in science, and mm-hmm. um, his main concern is knowledge like expanding knowledge and, and learning. But he also has a little bit of that kind of romantic sort of um, resistance to authority. Mm-hmm. I mean, not enough that he's going to get like keelhauled or anything, but he's very right. much a foil to to the character of Aubrey. And he is kind of like the new, the, uh, you know, the man of the new century. And in a strange way, like what you end up with in kind of like this, this, crucible of like seafaring um warfare is in the character of lord blakeney like the young uh up and coming off like very young like this you know literal child soldier um you have the synthesis of aubrey and maturin because blakeney has the the natural leadership qualities of Aubrey, but he also has the curiosity and intelligence of Maturin. Ah, the the man for a new century. Yeah. So uh, what I'm saying is that it's a it's a story about queer parenting. <laughs> it's I'm about doing... how yeah you've raised raised with two dads. Yeah, two dads raise yeah. a smart and brave and successful son. That is right. my queer reading of Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. All right. Um, I'm hey, all about that's... queer readings this week because I also did, um, I was on the Soundtracker podcast and I also put together mm. a queer reading of the film Electric Dreams. Okay. Uh, the computer is gay? Yes, you could frame oh, it as. Oh, because he loves it. At, yeah. Because he's looking, he's, an, he's a, a socially isolated outsider, like looking at this idealized heterosexual relationship, which he wants for himself, but cannot achieve. Ah, that is, that is, uh, that is some uh, incredible bullshit. You, you really <laughs> spun, you, you spun this convincing argument out of nothing. That's great. I'm, I'm going to take it to Tumblr where it will be properly appreciated. I'm not, not saying you're wrong. I'm saying that no. I like that you thrown, <laughs> that you just... Spun this out of a whole cloth. I know, but um, I'm saying th- I'm saying they love that shit on Tumblr. Right. Okay. Got it. Anyway, um, now we're going to talk I, about Aubrey Matcher and Slash. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, so I obviously did not remember the names of any of the characters. Um, I can help you with that. All right. the the child <laughs> The child that they're that these two men are raising together in love on a boat. <laughs> Who are you talking about? They're so about? cute. They play violin together. Yeah. Uh, violin and cello. Um, They're Lord in a band. Blakeney, the, the little kid who loses his arm. Okay, because that is, uh, that is um, so poignant. Because yes. that's one of the things that happens in the first, in the first scene, too, the, um, uh, where they are attacked by you know, the French vessel, where he you know, takes some like, wooden shrapnel into his arm, and he's like, ah, oh, no big deal. It's, bro- it's, you know, it's broken. But the kid is like, well, he's a child, so he's scared. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, things get worse, and he loses his arm. 
Yeah, a fucking kid. Yeah, he puts on a brave face for the captain who actually comes to see him and you know yeah. gives him a book about Lord Nelson to read and blah blah blah. And that is that is so touching too. Yeah, and then there's a there's a moment where he's talking to um uh Calamy, the other young mm-hmm. midshipman who the later still... in the film gets a promotion to uh lieutenant, a brief promotion to lieutenant. Yeah. Um and they have a and Blakeney asks him like is it true that when they when they sew you up after you're dead cuz they they sew them in like um canvas for sails when they yeah. put them over the side when they're dead he says is it true that they put the last stitch through your nose yeah cuz this little kid is <clears throat> is really scared of dying like he had been you know just on a ship this whole time then they get attacked then he gets injured then he loses an arm and he's well, not in a, a good way so he's and you know he's a scared little little kid. Well, and then one thing I notice is that immediately after that conversation, there's a cut, and you see, um, <clears throat> you see like a, a, you know, a close up of Blakeney like lying down, kind of like in cool light. And for a moment, it's like, wait, did he fucking die from <laughs> oh, the yeah. wooden shrapnel? And then, yeah. and no, like. They're taking him to the doctor because they're going to do. They're going to amputate his fucking arm. Yeah. And the, the this poor kid and like the surgery. The surgery in this movie is like fucking. It's gnarly. what you would expect for the 1800s. Yeah, like and at sea. And what I kept thinking, at rewatching this was like, did did they do, um, like did they sanitize shit back then? Because there was that. I, have you yeah, heard the story? Have you heard the story that one that there was that one doctor who was like a, a like an uh, an obstetrician or something, and he's like, "Hey, you know, I've noticed that we get fewer maternal deaths if you wash your hands before you deliver these kids. Like, we're getting less instances of right, puerperal yeah. fever and blah blah." And all the other doctors like, "Are you saying we got dirty hands?" Yeah. What the, the fuck, fuck is dude? wrong with you? Yeah. Like, you can't fucking this... say that shit to us. And so he was like kind of ostracized by his colleagues, and it took many more decades before people were like oh yeah like if you wash your hands like the patient might not just immediately die of sepsis yeah and um yeah and then he was committed to a mental institution um where he died of an infection (laughs) so you know at the end he's just like you motherfuckers yeah like nobody nobody's washing their damn hands right well i mean they might they must have been aware of it because later on when you know uh, Dr. Paul Bettany, well, he takes a, a shot and they're like, well, there's cloth embedded in the wound and like that's going to disintegrate and fester. Yes. So we need to get it out. So they must have some idea of it. And I mean, yeah, it's the, the kid got hit with, you know, splinters of wood and, you know, it's all the other, uh, I'm sure, sanitary conditions didn't help any of that. So yeah, he lost an arm. And that's so sad to see, you know, the little kid get so grievously injured like that, which yeah. is why it is so poignant, too, when, um, you know, Russell Crowe, you know, brings because, like, the kid is not really, you know, action ready at this point. He's kind of going to be sidelined and, you know, in his career, you, you, you know that. But, you know, he brings him a book of, you know, stories for, uh, about Lord Nelson, who is, you know, far and above you know, the naval hero of, you know, the British Empire. Yes. And, you know, he's like, oh, I hear that you, you know, knew Lord Nelson, and he did. 
Um, and you know, the kid like presses him for information, but you know, he, he demurs and he's like, just, you know, read the book and you know, he opens it and then, you know, on like the, you know, opening page is a picture of Lord Nelson missing an arm. That's right. Yeah. And yet that guy still crushed pussy. Of course he did. He's a military <laughs> hero. Like that was the thing. And that's the other thing too, that you notice a, a lot of the time this, you know, it was Diriger around, uh, World War One still to have like scars to you know have like a facial scar or be missing an eye or something because it's like oh, yeah. yeah I've been out out in the action tons of just like everyone has some kind of facial scar on this trip oh yeah like the really hot um first lieutenant Mr. Pullings right yeah or like even you know the captain like he's got something going on with his ear like you know kids short an arm there's a guy with like you can see like the stitches across like the bridge of his nose yes and then like, these guys um, have seen some shit. Yeah, and then the um the 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 brain surgery patient. Yeah. Who um damn, well now I'm forgetting his name. His, I'm going to call him Hold Fast. Yes. <laughs> you might have seen the screen cap on the yeah. internet, the the Hold Fast tattoos on his knuckles. Um the surgery is a success up to the po- up to a point like um Yeah, it gets a little loopy after there Yeah, after. as he's recuperating. He's not dead. Uh, you know the his compatriots like ah he hasn't said anything <laughs> yet and it's like god knows like what part of the human brain that they that Maturin poked when he was putting yeah. that coin in place like it's or remarkable. that he had to scoop out with a sharpened <laughs> piece of silverware that's a and the, the touches of humor in this movie are just great too that's another very humorous scene as the crew just like watching this surgery happening like on the deck just like open mouth mm-hmm. and they're like is that his brains and he's like no that's dried blood these are his brains <laughs> <laughs> it's like Ugh. and uh the patient does well, live see it? Yeah. but then he becomes like kind of a weird um uh like uh savant and like soothsayer because yeah. he um he's the one who starts talking about a jonah yeah, he's the one who really starts pushing the Jonah narrative because he's like, you know, growling out like biblical quotes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, hey, like for 1805 surgery. And then um, later in the movie when Maturin has to operate on himself. Yeah. Like, like you know, you'll recall that, oh, what, that, um, uh, what, that Russian at the Antarctic station. Yes. Had to give, do his own appendectomy. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the moment when you realize, like, this this guy isn't just, like, a, you know, like, a counterpart to Aubrey. Like, he is also a fucking badass. Right. Well, that's um, the uh, the kid who lost an arm. That's, you know, he kind of becomes his, uh, you know, prodigy after that, where he's like, oh, maybe it could be a naturalist like you, but not like a naturalist, like a fighting naturalist. <laughs> It's so cute. <laughs> it is, yeah. And it's cute, too, that he has his own, like, little naturalist drawings that are, you know, yes. about the caliber of, like, a nine-year-old. It's But so you can adorable. tell he's trying. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, his little, his little uh, drawing of the seal and everything. Yeah. Rawr. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cute. That kid is yeah. so smart. Yeah, and that the two of them have, you know, time to go over, you know, naturalist stuff. And he's like, well, what is this? It just looks like a stick. And he's like, well, that's a stick insect. And, yeah. which ends And they up- do a little bit of, you know, uh, a little info dump that you don't notice because you only think that it's in service of what's going on right now, not mm-hmm. realizing they're laying groundwork for a plot point 
at the climax of the movie. Exactly. Like, yeah. um, and you see how uh, Maturin, in spite of not being, uh, you know, a part of this institution, is still like definitely able to contribute because Aubrey is able to use that knowledge from Maturin to. Yeah, he's he's traditional, but he's open-minded still. Yes, he, it isn't like ossified to like, well, this is just the way things are done. Yes, it is. You know, he's still open to new ideas. Yeah, like compare him to the captain of the ship in the Terror. Where it's like, right? Yeah, uh, at, like oh, because like um, Jared Harris, my one of my favorite actors of all time. He's the captain mm-hmm. of the one ship, and then there's the other one who makes kind of the shitty decisions that leads them to their. Yeah, Jared. Horrific. Jared Harris is the middle child no one listens to in the Terror. Ugh, I he's so good in that show. <laughs> I love him so much. Um, yeah, like um, uh, God, like now I want to rewatch the Terror because that show like fucking yeah. old. But yeah, he takes on new information and he adapts to um, to do what is most advantageous. Yes. Rather than just being like, nope, this is the way things are and we're going to do it my way. Yep. Because this is the way we've always done it. And yeah, that is kind of the um, the point where, you know, the narratives of Master and Commander versus the Terror, you know, part ways. One is, you know, we're going to we're going to be be clever and resourceful and we're going to find ways to you know, mitigate this problem rather than being like, we're just going to do what we've always done. Right. Because I remember like, it's coming back to me, like in, in the terror, like Jared Harris's character is like, we should really do this. Cause otherwise we're going to be fucked. And like the other captain's like, nah, we're going to, because he's the, the other guy's the head of the expedition. He's like, nah, we're going to keep doing this. Yeah. He's saying we, it won't work. We're just going to have to wait it out until conditions get better. And they're like, fuck the conditions. We're Britain. <laughs> contrast to like the the relatively positive portrayal in master and commander and that is an element which makes the film feel sort of old-fashioned that this isn't a film which is necessarily going to spend a lot of time like kind of questioning these institutions it's going to depict it honestly and it's Mm -hmm. this isn't a sanitized portrait of naval life at the time, because you watch the movie, you're like, uh, you just keep thinking, like, God, it would fucking suck to be on that boat. That was something, because my dad also really liked this movie. I used to watch it with him, and we would just yeah. talk about, like, God, can you imagine just being on that goddamn boat? Like, how much that would suck? Yeah. I mean, like, even in my game of Traveler, everyone has their own stateroom. Like, that is unbelievable luxury. And there's, also, and that there's only a half a dozen of them, too. Also, every time I watch any kind of movie in this sort of environment, which is like a largely masculine environment, often mm. military, I just think, and I laugh, like, how would Tim respond to being in this environment? Not well. <laughs> Old keel-hauled Tim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was thinking that, like, the other, the other night I was well, yeah, watching it's... the original Manchurian Candidate, and uh-huh. I was just like, man, can you imagine Tim in North Korea? <laughs> like, just being like, why the, what, what the fuck is the point of this shit? Well, you like, know, this it's is like, ridiculous. Yeah, well, well, in that regard, Torgo is my spirit animal. You know, <laughs> hey, Torgo, taking the bags. Yeah, here I go, vroom. Then <laughs> <laughs> the thing I love about um, uh, Manchurian Candidate is a great film. Um, the premise that it's built on. Uh, somewhat doesn't hold up because that's not really how brainwashing works. 
Um, right. Yeah. Well, you, you know, actually can't make someone do like it, you can't make them into a sleeper agent. You can only just be like someone needs to do something about all these drag shows. <laughs> and then, you know, let's let let some insane some gun nut do, do the rest of the work for you. Yeah, they've kind of moved from like um, straight brainwashing to like mere sto- stochastic, stochastic terrorism, terrorism yeah. which is, you know, and they've they've, you know, credit where it's due they've uh, they've done all right with it so far right yeah it's like i don't need you know one guy i just need a guy yeah just could be anyone doesn't matter like they're expendable anyway yeah but i mean i was um like the the whole thing about like um manchurian candidate like that that idea that you could brainwash a you know like just an average american soldier like a patriotic guy into doing things antithetical to his very being mm-hmm. um like it doesn't necessarily hold up in the f- and but you know it it doesn't matter because the movie's still great but i always think about it because what inspired the the story was um these american pow's you know they were held by the north koreans and then they came back and they weren't they were basically saying things that reflected the opinions of their captors like they were saying like they were saying communist stuff yeah north korea's best korea right and the americans because you know this was the 50s they were like well like why why would any red-blooded american say things that were sympathetic to communism obviously they did something to their brains (laughs) (laughs) they they (laughs) He, uh, they nailed a, a coin on top of them, and you know it didn't. It didn't even occur to them that maybe, like, uh, you know, maybe the North Koreans weren't just like alien monsters. I mean, I'm sure like the, these soldiers were subjected to, um, you know, communist propaganda. Like they definitely got like the you know the the reeducation and everything. But I mean, that's not brainwashing. It's like making an argument to someone, and sometimes it's quite convincing. Right, yeah. So I have some literature for you. Um, <laughs> you don't need to sell me, Tim. I'm, I'm right, already right, yeah. a sleeper agent. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, sleeper agents are supposed to be effective, but <laughs> that's, that's beside the point. The um, joke's on them. I'm actually a triple agent. Oh, uh, okay. You could barely be a single agent. <laughs> There's a lot of modern cynicism about the motives of um, you know, you know, what, what went on at this time. Uh, you know, Master and Commander, it's men losing their lives, you know, pressed into service of the, uh, the, you know, the British Navy. Yeah, uh, the Empire. Just to go, just to fucking murder Frenchmen. Just just because. Um, but, you Gee, know, and Russell the English Pro- and the French normally got along so well, too. I know. There's a hundred years that they got along. Um, <laughs> but but Russell Crowe does make the point you know, towards the end when they have their you know final confrontation uh, with what uh, Archeron, um about Asheron Asheron yeah about um you know th- this this uh you know we're we're far from England we're on the far side of the world he turns to the camera when he says it I don't know why they left that in. <laughs> Um, but he's like, you know, we're far from England, but here the ship is England. And you realize that that is what they're fighting for. They're fighting for England because Napoleon is just, you know, rolling all over Europe, 
you know, just yeah. able to do whatever he wants. And if they don't fight back, then there, you know, there isn't going to be a, a British Isle anymore. That's going to be, you know, they're they're going to all be speaking French and having taking hour long lunches and drinking coffee. <laughs> By the way, if you want to learn more <laughs> and, about and burning their cities down when their pension, uh, uh, the age of retirement gets uh, moved back twenty four months, as they should. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I'm complaining. But he does make the point that, you know, we are fighting for England. There was something that they were actually fighting for rather than just being rather than just being like, there's a ship, we're going to take it. You want to call that raggedy-ass Macron your king? <laughs> there you go. Sorry, but you were, you were making a point about the French? No, I was making a point that it's easy to be cynical about the motives of what was going on at the time. But it was... But, you know, the captain does make a speech... Um, explaining what they're fighting for and that they're, yes. they're fighting for England and that even if they're far from home, the ship is England to them and to fight accordingly. It's a very motivational speech. It would be like in Traveler, if someone had the leadership skill, then they got like an effect of, I don't know, like you know, two or three and they're able to pass out bonus dice to all their officers. So then they did a better job. Like they give one to Lord Little Kid who, who <laughs> fucking tears shit up and you love to see it. Because it follows that same path of, you know, they're at their lowest at the beginning of the movie, then at the end you get to see them triumph. You know, they capture the Algernon. They they capture flowers for Algernon. Um, the Acheron, as they the call Acheron. it on the British yeah. side. Right, yeah. They they capture the, the Acheron. Um, the little kid who lost an arm, like, proves himself in battle, which is amazing to see. This little kid, like, commanding a crew, like, you know, uh, shooting cannons into like the midship of the uh, opposing vessel, you're like, fuck yeah, kid, you get them. Yeah, and it's wild too because um, this this movie also depicts that world of class division. Yeah, where there are these definite strata of the people on the ship. There are people who, you know, these groups like always. These people always like eat together, sleep together, everything. And mm -hmm. there's no oh. real, like, mixing. Um, right. And so you have the spectacle of a kid who looks like he's 12 or 13, like, commanding much older men simply because he's a lord. And I think the way that this worked is that if you had, like, an, uh, an officer candidate, like some, you know, some kid with a title who you thought might, like, make it in, yeah. like, a naval career, like, you just... you put him on a fucking boat, like, didn't matter if he was 12 years old, you know, they'll make a man out of him. <laughs> right, yeah. Like, if in your first career in Traveler, if you have a high social skill, you get an advantage to being accepted into, you know, as a naval officer. That's just the way the world is. Right. And that kind of, that stratification is, like, very interesting, because it's another way which, in which this world is, like, fairly alien to our own. Like, we, mm -hmm. especially, I mean, in America, we like to pretend that there's no, like, social stratification, like, there absolutely is, but we don't, you know, we don't put on uniforms and, yeah, you know, it's kind of touch our four locks about it. Right, yeah. But, um, speaking of, uh, officers and being successful or maybe unsuccessful, um, mm -hmm. We should talk about the character of Hollem, the yeah. tragic character. <laughs> the yeah, the one who's just not—he's not suited to a leadership role. That's yeah. You know, He's—he's—he's he's smart, but he's timid and he's lacking in leadership. You yes, know, you, you know that he's—he's he's going to fail his uh, his survival check for his career in the navy. 
And I kind of, um, I mean, I relate way too much to this character because, you know, there are aspirational characters in the movie. Mm -hmm. Aubrey Maturin, like all these effective officers. But, you know, what about the guy who really kind of just wants to be liked and like doesn't really have the spine to speak up for himself, even though he has the authority on his side? Like he's even when he's blatantly disrespected by men he outranks he can't bring himself to do anything about it and it's sad yeah it's it's sad too when yeah when they're all having a a shout along on deck (laughs) and then he joins in he's actually got a lovely singing voice and everyone's like what's this poofter up to oh it's terrible it takes you like right back to elementary school yeah (laughs) Yeah, it's like i'm sorry for for joining in your fucking song and i think that's one of the most primal human motivations because we are social creatures and so much Mm -hmm. of our lives and mental health depend on social connections and to be ostracized or to be like cut out from the group in any way is like and i know like um this is uh, i'm speaking about it from my perspective is someone Mm -hmm. who understands like that kind of anxiety but i think it affects most people who aren't just like straight up sociopaths like we all want to be accepted and we all want to fit in and to see someone just being cut out so blatantly is yeah the crew yeah the crew more than not liking him the crew doesn't respect him and that's 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 really you know his downfall is that he can't command any kind of respect from the people that he or from the men that he ostensibly commands yeah, and they they point out, you know, in his conversation later with, with the captain, you know, because mm-hmm. Aubrey's like, oh, what, you're like 25, 26? And he's like, oh, I'll be 30 next July or whatever. And it's like he's yeah. 30 and still a midshipman. And there are... Yeah, and, yeah, and he points out, he's like, oh, so you failed your, like, advancement twice. Yeah, that's tough. He's a, he's a regular rimmer. And this was a thing that I also liked in uh, in another From favorite Red show Dwarf. of mine, uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, the episodes which, which focused on those who didn't quite fit into Starfleet. Yeah. Like, those always made for very interesting, you know, like your your original Barclays or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, or what, because, the uh, alternate timeline one where um, Picard becomes like a science officer. Oh, yeah. He's a sad and- sack. <laughs> He's like wearing the blue uniform with just the, the you know the two pips and he's like well wait a minute like what um what is my rank on the ship again <laughs> um yeah because you're you know most of the time you're on the when you're on the enterprise like the flagship of starfleet with like mm-hmm. the most elite and competent officers possible and then kind of the struggles of you know people who aren't quite cutting it in that milieu like it really does like cause you Remind anxiety of work yeah yeah you're just like oh god that must suck yeah and uh there is after um because you can i like that you can figure out what he's going through and what he's going to do when you know holland is you know on the um with the the rear you know deck of the ship and he picks up a cannonball and yeah. he just kind of like you know says some nice pleasantries to the to the guy on the watch and then he you know throws himself overboard and the the this epilogue... is such a wonderful moment for this actor too i'm sorry to interrupt but i really wanted to point it out like he has that um because he's 
spent a lot of time reacting to, you know, his maltreatment by the other members of the crew. Like he's having he's literally having a panic panic attack shortly before. Right, yeah, because he has to scene. sort of run run the gauntlet of all the crew being like saluting him sarcastically. Oh god, like you're you just cringe seeing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like trying to be a school teacher or something. Oh uh, yeah, just, like, like that's everyone hates you. Yeah, yeah. You're like just yeah, fuck me for trying to teach you about science. Yeah, um, but then the moment when he decide he decides that there's only one thing left for me to do. This is the only thing I yeah. can do at this point. And the way that and he's not cut out for it. Yeah, and then the aura of peace mm-hmm. that he has. Uh, this actor is uh, Lee Ingleby, and yeah. this is a really a memorable role and a, and a, and a great character. Um, mm. But just the way that, and you know, this happens with people who are suicidal a lot of the time when they finally decide to do it. Um, people who know them will comment like, yeah, like he seems so upbeat, like right before yeah, he died. You know, it's finally over. Like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Which is horrible to talk about. It's a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's awful to talk about, but uh, you know, to keep, to put yourself in the mind of, someone going through this it's like yeah like when you finally see a way out and mm-hmm. there's clarity and where there's clarity there is no choice and where there's choice there is misery check out our head episode <laughs> uh yeah and um what i'm uh, sorry but i cut you off no, because i just wanted to call yeah. it the actor because he's great <laughs> right yeah yeah fear accompanies the possibility of death um, calmness shepherds at certainty. Yeah. I love hanging with you, man. That's from uh, uh, the first season of Farscape. Oh, hey, cool. Yeah. Um, and the it is also, you know, touching and tragic, the, you know, epilogue that, you know, uh, the that Russell Crowe's captain gives, you know, after a guy throws himself overboard is that he says, not all of us become the men we thought we might be. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he I wouldn't just... know anything about that, right. Captain. Yeah, yeah. Check out r slash after gifted. Um... <laughs> check out the other uh, 160 or so episodes of this podcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's you know he, it shows that he is you know a, a caring and conscientious captain. Although he does have to make a lot of difficult decisions, but he's like, yeah, I understand what you know these other men are going through. Like I and I appreciate them. Yes, you know, people, even if, you know, they don't, it isn't that anyone is falling short of some, of some measure. It is that people are trying their best to, you know, realize their full potential and some, some fall short. Yeah. And it's an interesting line that the movie walks because I feel like if they took it too far in one direction, the movie could come off as incredibly reactionary. Like, oh, this guy's a fucking failure. Like, thank God he fucking... Well, because there's board. sympathy for them rather than you know sneering disdain right exactly yeah. um and that's what makes the the story tragic instead of um you know cruel right um and we'll talk a little bit about the, how this movie has been framed as inherently conservative of in some way we'll get to that um because we got a fun little uh bit about that <laughs> oh great but um the way that it treats... You're right, like because it treats the character like sympathetically. And the circumstances which push Hollum into the role of Jonah are just 
they're entirely not at his doing. Right. Because, yeah. And, you know, it's a guy with a brain injury who Mm -hmm. is the one pushing the narrative that, you know, you know, Hollum's the one who, you know, when he and another great fucking scene that kind of gets it rolling is um, Mm -hmm. when they hit very bad weather and a mass breaks and is in the ocean, like still attached by ropes to the ship, but it's dragging. It's a sea anchor. And it's like, okay, well, we're fucked because we have to cut it loose, except we lost one of our men overboard and that's his only chance. Yes. That's his only chance to get back on board, but we can't, we have to cut this thing loose. And, uh, there's an exquisite musical theme over the scene, the scene of, um, you know, the decision is made. They got to cut this thing loose. The man Mm -hmm. slowly being lost to the stormy waves, you know, and his cries getting fainter and fainter. The reaction of his, uh, compatriots as they're cutting the ropes with an axe yeah um i don't and i thought that this musical theme was like a classical piece because there is and they do a great job with the soundtrack in this movie as well because obviously there's a lot of period music in it there's um string music played by uh aubrey matron together in duet there are other classical like orchestral pieces but i did not realize until literally today when I looked, I was like, who did do the music for this? It's mm. uh, an Australian musician called Iva Davis, who was part of a band called Ice House, who did a couple of my favorite songs of the 80s, uh, Crazy and um, Electric Blue is the other one. Uh, that's ah. on the album uh, Man of Colors, which is a great album if you love 80s music. And I was like, holy shit, it's that guy. Um, look up the video for crazy because it is absolutely the most magnificent mullet you've ever seen in your goddamn life (laughs) there is not one to equal it crazy by whom ice house ice house yes tim you should do this hairstyle i don't it would rock that's a good idea (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah um and i think that the the music which plays over this very um this very sad scene with the sea anchor like i believe that is by the composer for a long time i thought it was a classical theme Mm -hmm. and i was like what is it is it is it because there's bach and there's mozart and there's right uh, um but it's not any of those and i was like damn you know that is a really excellent way that they integrated the contemporary score with the period music like it's seamless and Mm -hmm. that it's really something like everything about this movie is just sublime right it's very interesting i (laughs) and i i'm glad that you mentioned the uh sea anchor scene because um for better or worse that's the only part of this movie that i remembered until i rewatched it (laughs) I mean, you know, make of it what you will, but yeah, it's about, you may, and true to, you know, the way that I run, you know, my traveler games is that, you know, it's about making tough decisions. It's saying Mm -hmm. like, you have two choices and you can pick one. Yeah. You know, you can't have it both ways. And it is, and this is, um, if you were going to fault, you know, Russell Crowe's character at any point is that he is, uh, single-mindedly determined about, um, about, you know, catching and capturing, you know, the, the Asheron. Yeah. Yeah. Because that that is their mission. Like that is the one thing that they're there to do. And they even point to it too, where it's like, our our the scope of our mission was as far as Brazil. 
Like we are well past Brazil at this point. They're they're rounding Cape Horn at that point. Yes, and that's the moment where um, Aubrey's ambition gets the better of him a little bit, and exactly, there are all these yeah. consequences which play out as a result. They're pushing against really bad weather. They're pushing the ship to its absolute limits, right? And they're going beyond what they were ordered to do because he is so single-minded about you know catching this yeah. sinister French ship. And that is unfortunate because they've had some really cunning plans before then. Like they set up a decoy, mm-hmm. you know, they escaped through a fog. Um, they um, were able to kind of get the drop on the Asheron. And if only they can just keep pursuing them through this, you know, atrocious weather through you mm-hmm. know, the storms of Cape Horn, then they've got them and they just can't manage it. They, you know, they... Um, you know, they, their, their mast breaks, they lose, you know, one of the, the, the well-liked, you know, crewmen overboard and they've got to cut him loose. And I remember that because it's like, you have a difficult decision ahead of you. You have to either let, let the prize go or let this man die. Yes. And unfortunately they kind of lose both of those things. Yeah. And kind of the knock on effects of that, of, Aubrey's decision or mm-hmm. it's 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 really compelling and then also the you know this this prize the the Acheron um mm-hmm. there are a couple points where it's within their grasp and yeah. Aubrey is forced to make a decision to not pursue it like for example when um Matron gets accidentally shot by one of the Marines who's aiming at an albatross. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I love because, like, um, just the and Paul Bettany is 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 so good because anytime he's interacting with like the natural world, just the look of wonder on his face mm-hmm. and enchantment, and he just desperately wants to take get a look at this bird. And yeah. meanwhile, the Marine has got his gun. And he's like, "It's my bird. It's my bird." And he's like, you know, and that's the. You know, of course, like the first instinct for most of these guys is like, yeah, fucking kill it. <laughs> and be like, I bet I can shoot that bird. Exactly. And then he accidentally shoots the ship's doctor, which is like, uh-oh. <laughs> and right, yeah. Aubrey is forced to decide like, um, okay, like my best friend is going to fucking die mm-hmm. if he doesn't get the surgery. Well, you but- know, yeah, they've got a a surgeon, you know, a a, a butcher who can read. Yeah, um, like the, yeah, the 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 doctor's um, the doctor's assistant Higgins, who is like, yeah. yeah, you know, I'll take I'll take a crack at it. I gotta look at some of uh, Matron's books before I do it. And he's yeah, like looking and, at anatomy texts and like drinking. Yeah, and like doing it at sea probably isn't gonna help. Um, uh, yeah, and they hadn't yeah. um they hadn't uh this was well before uh Grover President Glover, Grover Cleveland had surgery at sea. To remove yeah. a cancerous tumor from his jaw. Like, they had to do it in secret because they're like, well, we don't want people to know the president is, like, you know, right. got a fucking cancerous growth. That's a very, there's a whole book about that, and it's fascinating. But this is 1805. Yeah. They, you know, they're like, no, like, what are we going to do? Yeah, it, it, there's, there's a lot of uncharted uh, waters here where it's like, uh, give it a shot. Let's see what happens. Yes. Um, yeah, and it's trying to trying to strategically make the best of you know limited your limited resources. Yeah. Um, which I you know find interesting. Um, and this is and it's also one of the things which um, points up the relationship between these two men and what makes it truly like a memorable friendship. And that's um, I I I love uh, male friendships like this in media, and mm. I'm not going to say that cursed phrase. 
<laughs> um, yeah, best leave it alone. Just yeah, just normalize it. You don't have to come up with a goofy word for it. Right. Just be like, yeah, this man is my friend. Right. Because um, and you know, knowing that that's something which in our um, in our fascinating modern age that we live in, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of men struggle with, like men are very isolated. Um, they don't have close friends, and they're they're lacking that emotional connection. And mm-hmm. to see it embodied in 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 this movie is like really wonderful. And I think that's why um, these characters are also so durable. I mean, like I'm like I said, I'm too stupid to read the books, but people really, really, really love. These Patrick O'Brien right. novels about uh, Captain Jack Aubrey and Doctor Maturin, and it's because of that. I mean, it's like it's like yeah, Holmes and there, Watson. Yeah, there's well, there's a lot of camaraderie not just between them, but I mean amongst the men on the ship because they're just going through hell. They're trauma and, bonded. <laughs> sure, right. <laughs> Sorry, I'll I'll take it to Tumblr. Flippant phrase. Yeah, uh, <laughs> take it and leave it there. Um, but yeah, because they are. You know, they're going through hell, and I mean, you know, they just you know lost you know some uh, someone's you know lost a friend. You know, you've you've seen someone die horribly. Um, yeah, so you have to treasure those those moments of um, you know camaraderie and friendship when you have them, because who knows? Like you know, someone may go overboard. You might get attacked. You know, <laughs> you you know, so someone who's been your friend this entire time could you know die in a raiding party yeah yeah so, like you could get yeah, you have promoted to, you have to, to appreciate uh, that time when, while you can you get promoted to second lieutenant and then just get immediately ventilated by frenchmen right yeah you could end up dying off screen after everything's been going so well which is again what i love about character creation and traveler but <laughs> i'll try I'll try you to, Tim, you I'll don't try have to, to stick exclusively to Traveler to get these things. I mean, like, they're embodied in movies like this one, which are very well made. I, hey, I, I watched this movie. I paid my debt. <laughs> I'll try and inject Traveler into this episode, like, 100% less from now on. Now, now that we're already uh, 100 minutes in. But uh, what else? Um, yeah, they stopped at the Galapagos, so that's... Again, like one of these highlights, like if you were on a if you were on a sailing vessel in uncharted waters, you know what what better um, side quest than to go hit up the Galapagos and you get to see some cool shit. It's not all just you know war and naval combat. You can actually do some fun things that aren't about that. Like you know the men are are, are playing cricket on the shore and I think they're brewing like tequila. Yeah, they uh, they get hold of some cactuses and chop them up and make some kind of very good grog. Yeah, I forget what you make with cactus. Cactus I juice. I don't know. <laughs> cactus cooler. That's where it comes <laughs> Hell from. Hell yeah. Oh, no wonder they were enjoying it so much because that's just good. Yeah, yeah. I love cactus um, cooler. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. You heard it here first. Um, yeah, and there is, again, like some um, you know, back and forth. Like the Galapagos does end up being like this kind of like extra bonus, um, you know, long rest period for them um, because it was a place where they had, you know, sailed past it and then it's like oh the now that ship's within sight we can't stay you know now we have favorable conditions you know no time no time for love dr jones we got to go chase the ship <laughs> and then you know later on events change is like all right i you know i i i bought you the damn uh, couch like you can you can go back to the galapagos yes that simpsons where uh unky herb buys uh homer the vibrating chair oh right <laughs> right so <laughs> Huh. 
Yeah. So then, then um, they fight the French and give them hell. That's good. Um, yes. But the French have a trick or two up their own sleeves. Yeah, those those tricky French. Never yes. trust a Frenchman. That's your that's the takeaway from the movie. Yeah, they're gonna do tricky shit like pretend to be the ship's doctor. Yeah, and that and he figures it out, and it's like, all right, well, <laughs> time to go go knock some heads, and that's the the thing that is um, out of out of step with I think a lot of you know media of its time is that in every step it is a competent captain who comes up with a clever plan that works. Yes. It isn't like we get halfway through and everything falls apart and everyone's like, ah, oh, shit, now we got to do something else. It isn't like, you know, I'm the leader, but I'm secretly like a coward or some shit like that. It's like, no, everything is what, what they say it is. And we work hard to achieve the goals that we set for ourselves. Would it, uh, would that we lived in that world? Well, and there's always, there is always going to be adversity. And then also like the door just cracked a little bit for a sequel, which may take 20 years to get percolating right well you know it's uh sailing around the ocean it takes time but um i want to talk about uh a little bit about the perception of this movie because um this kind of uh groundswell of appreciation for it has been in the works for a long time i mean this movie was well reviewed when it came out Mm -hmm. um and it didn't lose money but it wasn't the blockbuster that it wasn't the Lord of the Rings. Had it been any other year, maybe we might have right. had a chance. Right. And but as the years have gone on, um, I found a lot of people like myself who are like, dude, this movie is fucking sick, dude. It's so good. Like you have to see it. Like it's it's definitely been a little bit of a cult thing. And it seems to have reached critical mass with social media because as soon as I started being active on Twitter, you'd see mm-hmm. people say like, ah, you know, Master and Commander, like, great film. Like, you gotta see it. And next thing you know, people are getting tattoos of the right. opening title screen. Well, yeah, what a what a refreshing notion, the idea that your actions, like, have positive consequences. Yeah, and recently uh, there was a GQ article, which is like, why do so many guys love Master and Commander? Of course, uh, and this isn't, <laughs> fortunately... A movie. Well, fortunately, this wasn't some, like... Uh, Kyle Smith bullshit where it's like, oh, like, you know, women just don't understand Goodfellas because it's about dudes being bros with each other. Um, <laughs> discourse is so retarded. It really is. It's, it's tragic. In this yeah. case, it was like it, the GQ, even though GQ is a men's magazine, it's like, yes, there are like guys is gender neutral in this case because there are a lot of people mm-hmm. who really love this movie. Right. Um, but yeah, like Jen doesn't. Jen isn't a guy. Uh, no, I've tried and I right, failed. Yeah. I know, he couldn't, couldn't cut it as a guy. But yeah, um, a thing, um, okay. So, the GQ article. Well, the the GQ article is like, you know, fine. What I mean, I'm sure I agree with, with, with most of it, but um, from slightly darker corners of darker the, waters. the media world, um, literally more than a decade ago, because this is from 2009, and mm-hmm. I remember the first time I saw it because I was honestly a little bit triggered. Um, the National Review, which is a magazine which my mom has read she has for no a long time. has no taste in media, yeah. <laughs> you know, every now and then they'll cover, uh, you know, popular entertainment. Um, and uh, in 2009, they had an article called um, the, the Top 25 uh, 
best conservative movies. And what do you know? Uh, what's, what's number one? Like uh, uh, Death Wish? They start off with The Lives of Others. Okay. Uh, and the next film is The Incredibles. <laughs> oh, the fucking Randy and Archetype. All right. Hey, um, I mean, number three, Metropolitan. Like, yeah, like 100%. Um, even though I really like Metropolitan. Um, mm. But hey, number four, Tim, it's Forrest my Gump. Kind of ice cream. <laughs> well, it's because it's all like gauzy nostalgia for whatever this imagined like non-existent america well get this um this is the uh, okay like i'll indulge me a little bit this is the blurb blurb for forrest gump Mm -hmm. it won an oscar for best picture beating pulp fiction a movie that's far more expressive of hollywood's worldview whatever the fuck that means tom (laughs) hanks the monoculture of hollywood yeah yeah tom hanks plays the title character an amiable dunce who is far too smart to embrace the lethal values of the 1960s the love of his life, wonderfully played by Robin Wright Penn, chooses a different path. She becomes a drug-addled hippie with disastrous results. Forrest's IQ may be room temperature, but he serves as an unexpected font of wisdom. Put him on a Whitman sampler, but Mama Gump's famous words about life being like a box of chocolates ring true. That, uh, yeah, that's a brain-dead review for a brain-dead character. That's fine. Uh, um, I, I, I do have to uh, add, though, that um, Forrest Gump was also made by Hollywood, so I'm not really sure <laughs> what, what point they're trying to make. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the National Review. Like, they don't really think these things through it's, to their It's just like, does it feel right, or is it actually right? I don't know. Now, it, it won't shock you that number five is 300. Yeah. Yeah, one of the most reactionary well, films I've ever seen, and one of the most repulsive. If I'm I being wouldn't honest. have expected that from Frank Miller, but <laughs> that's uh, just me. This is going to upset you. Number six, Groundhog Day. What? Yeah. How? I, uh, what's What's the blurb for that? I'm curious now. Okay. Uh, this putative. A, oh, small town, because he's from he's from the city. Uh, this putatively wacky comedy about Bill Murray is an obnoxious weatherman cursed to yeah. relieve the same, relive the same day over and over in a small Pennsylvania town, perhaps for eternity, is in fact a sophisticated commentary on the good and true. Theologians and philosophers across the ideological spectrum have embraced it. For the conservative, the moral of the tale is that redemption and meaning are derived not from indulging your authentic, quote-unquote, instincts and drives, but from striving to live up to external and timeless ideals. Murray begins the film as an irony-soaked narcissist, contemptuous of beauty, art, and commitment. His journey of self-discovery leads him to understand that the fads of modernity are no substitute for the permanent things. And that blurb is by one of the biggest dumbasses in punditry, Jonah Goldberg. So I don't course. know who that is. Uh, why He's would a fucking I... idiot. Okay. Well, wait. Isn't um like sneering narcissism and contempt for art like aren't those like conservative hallmarks though? I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Walk the walk. I've lived with these people and I still can't explain them. <laughs> so, but um, right. I I yeah, feel like just... we could spend a whole episode reading through this the ability list. of double think but yeah. um let me get to number 16 okay which is master and commander and here's what john j miller whoever the fuck that is says about master and commander from 2003 okay 
This naval adventure film starring Russell Crowe is based on the books of Patrick O'Brien, and here's what A.O. Scott of the New York Times said in his review. The Napoleonic Wars that followed the French Revolution gave birth, among other things, to British conservatism and master and commander, making no concessions to modern egalitarian sensibilities, is among the most thoroughly and proudly conservative movies ever made. It imagines the HMS Surprise as a coherent society in which stability is underwritten by custom and every man knows his duty and his place. I would not have been surprised to see Edmund Burke's name in the credits. Okay, so John J. Miller didn't write anything about Master and Commander. He just lifted a quote by A.O. Scott and was like, oh, yeah, it's a conservative movie. Lazy piece of shit. <laughs> he had someone else do his homework for him. Maybe he Damn. should try being best. They cribbed it from the most hate, one of the most hated publications by conservatives, the fucking New York Times. Yeah. I guess maybe, and I haven't read the A.O. Scott review, like maybe he was saying like, oh, this movie sucked because it was conservative. I have no idea. But I mean, like we said, the movie is old fashioned in a way. And you could do a conservative read of the film, but I feel like it's doing, like that would do the movie a disservice. I, you know, conservatism seems to like say it believes one thing, but it sure doesn't really like express itself in its actual actions i i understand that like there is an appeal of like i said you know throughout the movie it is about you know a a virtuous character who's always right but that i mean that it just doesn't bear itself out I i don't have the um you know chops for discussing you know political commentary but um i don't see that same thing echoed in like you know the the conservative you know body politic i don't i don't see people like taking on um new information and then coming up with a better you know more prosperous solution i just see you know cruelty and um you know uh oppression of marginalized groups like the these I mean, you know, mm-hmm. mean what you say, like, you know, say what you mean, <laughs> like, um, th- it doesn't even be coming across in like their actual actions. Um, the, these sort of notions of, uh, uh, of, of doing the right thing and, you know, being the better person for it. I don't see that happening. I see a lot of you know, being tied to established power structures because those are the ones that have served you and being, <laughs> Uh, just you know, and denigrating anyone who doesn't belong to that. Well, and, and it's 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 telling that they're focused on this. I mean, I guess you know, I'd say John J. Miller of the NASA Review, but he, like I said, he just lifted A. O. Scott's words. Um, this notion of a rosier time period where there were strict hierarchies and everyone knew their place. And, uh, you know, floggings were dealt out, mm-hmm. you know, to uh, to miscreants and it just worked out um, and everybody just kind of like soldiered along in their very defined little roles. Um, it's kind of like how the sort of the defining vision of, you know, kind of like, tra- uh, like, look at all those trad 
Twitter accounts where they're like, you know, look at what, <laughs> look at what we've lost, and they'll post like just a Madison Avenue vision of mm-hmm. a '50s American family. Like, oh, like this is a picture from an advertisement of a nice, attractive white couple and their white children in their white suburb. Like, what have what have we lost? And I was like, okay, you know that this was a thing which was sold to the public. Like, right, yeah. not that it's... like nice white families didn't exist, but this is like an idealized version. And it was really like, you know, it was put forward to kind of obscure like these other people who didn't like quite fit into the, you know, to the picture. Cause like beyond, right. beyond the borders of that advertisement or like, you know, like a fucking like restaurant under like Jim Crow laws where it's like, oh, you black people can't eat at this fucking lunch counter. Right, yeah, you aren't getting Master and Commander from the, you know, the press gang crew's point of view. Right, and I would be interested to see the conservative read of uh, a character like Dr. Maturin. I mean, again, Mm -hmm. this fucking joker who contributed this listicle for the NRO, like, didn't even write his own blurb for the goddamn movie, so who knows what he thought. He's like, oh, yeah, A.O. Scott said it was conservative. Well, yeah, he's just coasting on, you know, his uh, his laurels, I guess. I mean, I'm pretty sure that he was, you know, um, you know, born into what's the what's the thing? You know, he started on third and thought he hit a triple. Wingnut welfare, they call it. All right, yeah, there you go. I mean, like, um, you know, Jonah Goldberg wouldn't have a fucking job if his mom hadn't been like a, you know, establishment ghoul. Yeah, scum, all of them. Yes. Um, the uh, I would also like to see, you know, does anyone in um reviewing Master and Commander on the, you know, conservative blogosphere. Um, do they have anything to say about what um what the captain steward? The the guy is just like Killick. always grumbling. Yeah. Oh god, that guy rules. <laughs> it's like I never caught a word, but he's always mad about something. This movie is well worth watching with uh closed captioning. Yeah. Um and they did they did a great job on this. Does just say like too. Welsh grumbling? <laughs> No, they'll get, and it's it's a really good way to pick up, like, a lot of these um, expressions and idioms of the time that are like, you know, what the hell does that mean? But they yeah. become clearer with, with the subtitles. But yeah, like, they translate uh, Killick's grumbling, and it's always extremely funny. <laughs> I believe it, because like yeah, when a, a great bit of color. Yeah, like the bit where, um, <laughs> like, when those two, uh, the two able-bodied seamen come in to tell the captain like hey like you know he saw the sh- the Acheron being built and like I knocked up a model for you and mm-hmm. Aubrey's pleased and he says uh, you know an extra ration of grog for uh, you know our two yeah. friends here and then Kelly's just saying oh well you know we were going to toast with that stuff like eh, whatever we'll just toast with wine like it doesn't matter you know <laughs> <laughs> like just always like this like this uh this ir- irritable commentary on like everything that the captain asked yeah. him to do. <laughs> so I guess there are like two like slightly subversive characters in the ship. You got Matron and then you got Killick who are like kind of like the, the color commentary. Yeah. Cause it's one thing to be like, I'm the captain and I'll just you know, what I say goes, this is the plan now. And the other guy's like, well, I got to actually implement your fucking plan. <laughs> Uh, and you know, I'll say this: like this was a movie that I could watch with my dad, who was a <sighs> God love him. I loved my dad. My dad is great, but he was a Trump loving conservative. 
Yeah, he um, was a, a just a, a weak-minded sycophant and a for real cold warrior. I mean, my dad was mm-hmm. my dad was that old. He was Silent Generation, and you know he really believed in these ideals of like you know America, like anti-communism and stuff like that. I mean, I didn't get it, and I'm sure he like would despair at my politics. But we watched this movie a few times here. We watched it in the theater, in fact, and mm-hmm. he loved it. And I loved it. And it's kind of a testament to the strength of this movie that it isn't just one thing to one person. Um, well, yeah, because it, like I said, it's, you know, it doesn't have the, it has sympathy for weaker characters, not contempt for them. Yes. That and is, that's, a, a, that's thing, a great way of putting it. Yeah. It's that compassion that's, you know, just been uh, sort of uh, squeezed out of the conservative mindset. Yeah. Cause I'm sure that like over at the NRO, the, like the, the read on Holland would be like, yeah, thank God he fucking killed himself. Piece of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Make room for a, a strong man. Yeah. Well, it's slowly turning into fascism anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, you'll like this, uh, the last three films in the list. Oh no, I'll give you the last four films in the okay. list. Uh, 22 Brazil. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. All right. Yeah, like which a, is a crucial misreading, but sure. Yeah, like I don't know how. Like in light of the ending, I don't know how you, or I mean, the real ending, not the, you know, yeah. the, the mega right. happy ending the studio made them staple on. Yeah, like uh, hmm, um, yeah, but the way they put it is a uh, terrorist bombings, national security scares, universal police surveillance, bureaucratic arrogance, a callous elite perversion of science, and government use of torture evoke the worst aspects of the modern megastate. Wow, that is hilarious. Fourteen years. Guantanamo later. Bay, motherfuckers, come on. This was only what, like six years after? Uh, How diluted can? Yeah, can, can mm. one political uh, philosophy be? Jeez. Yeah. Oh, but uh, who do okay. you think is torturing these people? Who's putting <laughs> you know children crossing the border in cages? Oh, but torture is good when we do it because we're righteous. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, number twenty-three. Uh, United mm. ninety-three. Fuck you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's all. That's all that we need to say. Um, right. Twenty-four. Team America. World Police. Well, I mean, you know, the South Park guys are libertarians. Yeah, so. they are. I mean, and uh, wrong about a lot of things. So yeah, whatever. that that um, I'll give them that one. But uh, Team America is an extremely funny movie. Yeah, probably, I don't know. I don't know. I like. I saw it. I saw it in the theater, and I almost peed myself laughing. Um, yeah. Okay, number twenty-five, Grand Torino, starring Clint Eastwood. Uh, you know, that is about an old, um, grizzled white guy who helps his community, so I'm gonna disagree. (laughs) Well, I'm sure they like it because Clint Eastwood plays an old Polak who says slurs, like old-timey slurs. Yeah, I think maybe, I think these are reviews by people who haven't seen the movie. Oh, God. And then go out on a limb. Oh, oh, shit. Okay, well, here's the last, here's the last couple sentences of of the blurb on it. Um, yeah. (laughs) 
And again, like conflating uh, Eastwood with his most immortal character, Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry mm-hmm. blows away political correctness, takes on the bad guys, and turns a boy into the man in the process. He even encourages the cultural assimilation of immigrants. It feels so good, you knew the Academy would ignore it. <laughs> okay, uh, just, and... Just you, climbing onto that cross. Persecution and fetish. Guess who wrote that blurb? Who wrote that blurb? Andrew Breitbart. Rest in piss, bitch. <laughs> uh, I I know the name, but I don't know who that asshole is. It's um, this as well. He founded... You, you don't need to explain it to me. I don't care. <laughs> well, for people who want to know who are also listening to this, he founded, of course, the detestable um, outlet, Breitbart.com. Like that I know, yeah. And then uh, he fucking died because his heart exploded because he was a fucking cocaine addict because all of these people are just absolutely despicable hypocrites yeah yeah i mean i guess hypocrisy does kind of seem to be the uh the unifying theme here and that like they're all about like these are all characters who are like helping other people and i don't know being magnanimous but like i just i do not ever see that in conservative actions it, it always is just some matter of just oppression Okay. Any other word. This is fully brain dead because yeah. there are, there are some honorable mentions. Um, one of which is Serenity. <laughs> Whatever. Like okay, and then um, uh, and then uh, yeah, the, literally. There's under... much better sci-fi to be um, to to uh, to be had. To be had, yeah. Yeah, but okay. So, um, and this is literally under the, the, uh, the heading, twenty-five more great conservative movies. One of them is an American Carol, which is okay, like, I don't... okay, um, it's one of the guys who did, uh, like, Airplane, and Naked Gun. Like he took he took oh, like okay. a big conservative heel turn, and then he made this like parody movie of like Michael Moore and stuff like that, which my dad and a friend of his paid to see in the theater. And when he came back and I asked him like, how was it? He was like, Ugh. like <laughs> I think like, that movie is considered pretty much like a dismal failure. So okay. they're just like, there, there isn't even a pretense to like quality in this list at this point. It's like, Oh, it's a conservative movie. Watch it. It's great. Right. Yeah. Not because it's good. Watch it because it's conservative. Yeah. Mm. Well, so that is um that is our uh that is our episode about one of the great conservative films. <laughs> Master <laughs> well, Commander. The far I mean, I side of the let, world. I, I mean I shouldn't let like, you know, a, a poisonous political philosophy spoil what's otherwise a good movie. Because I mean I don't see conservative like ideals in that. I mean I see supposed conservative ideals but nothing that is actually acted on i don't see you people helping their community or lifting others up well i, I see, see um hmm? like i feel like that's a and you know there are obviously with any um piece of media or art there there are multiple readings that you could do and you you can force this into like kind of a conservative box but i think it's missing a lot of other really good aspects of the film like for example like the compassion with which the character of Hollem is treated is like a tragic figure and not like 
the Jonah despised by the crew. Yeah, I mean, if you, I guess, if you filter out enough of of things that you disagree with, then yeah, you could <laughs> see it as conservative movie. Yeah, but I mean, that is also a conservative uh, hallmark, isn't it? But it does kind of fit that a movie where disappearing things that you don't like. It does kind of fit that a movie in which literal children are forced into warfare would appeal to conservatives. <laughs> or you know, just working in an abattoir and then getting married at twelve. <laughs> <laughs> or you know, um, dying of preventable preventable illness at a young age, right? Yeah, well, yeah, in service of empire. Yeah, so yeah. I guess. Hey. Oh, I guess. Yeah, and there weren't any gays in this, so that's also very conservative. Right. You have to go to the terror mm. for that. Right. <laughs> Boy, that was a fraught he- moment when I was watching that show with my dad, and I figured out, and I was like, "Oh, great! There's gay sex in it. Please don't <laughs> let my dad blow up about this." Uh, get the the infinite patience and tolerance of an old conservative man. He he uh, he grumbled a little bit, but he I think he knew but, not to. But when they realized he was the villain, it's like oh, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, oh, the villain's one of the one of those queers. So right, yeah, yeah. And then he gets torn apart by a bear creature at the end. So yep, just oh. as God intended. <laughs> he, yeah, just oh, gets split by a bear. Mm. 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 <laughs> In the Navy. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? We've gone so far off the rails. Well, Tim, do you have anything else you would like to say about Master Commander, the far side of the world? Yeah, but we've kind of done the rest of it to death, so. Oh, well, I guess you don't. In the Navy, you can hang out with your friends in the Navy. I don't know. You got a, you got a finisher? Because um, otherwise I'm going to start singing Gilbert and Sullivan again. Huh. Jeez. Um, a British tar is a soaring soul as free as a mountain bird. Come on, Tim, join me. And we killed a French United Kingdom because I got me a bird back home. <laughs>